Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the uh, IFPRI Amos seminar series, the latest in this seminar series. We're going to talk about Ukraine one year later and the impact of the war on agricultural markets and food security. And this is an event co-organized by IFPRI and the Agricultural Market Information Systems, Amos. And, and we find ourselves out one, one year from the start of the war in Ukraine. And we had an event on the on the heels of the beginning of the war of Ukraine. And I think that as things have evolved, we continue to see impacts of this event. Uh, and that, that's an understatement of what we're dealing with, this war in Ukraine, and see its impact on global food consumers and agricultural production around the world. I'm going to be a little bit circumscribed in my comments today because I am Seth Meyer. I am the Amos chair, but I'm also Seth Meyer, chief economist at USDA. And today is report day at USDA. So I won't ask any questions because I wouldn't want anyone to think that while my crew is in lockup, that my questions at all pertain to today's release of the report. But we've got a really great program, a really great program for you all today. We've got four fantastic speakers, and then we'll have a dialogue under our usual format. And so as we go through, though, I would normally interject lots of questions, but as always, we want to hear from you all, and we want to hear from your questions. So to participate in our Q&A session, submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So please give us your questions as we move into the question and answer session. I think we've got a great set of speakers, so I don't think we'll have any problem having a lively discussion amongst uh, the panelists and questions from the audience. So we're going to kick it right off and, and get straight into our, our panelists because I think they've got great information. And our first is Nikolai Gorbachev, president of the Ukrainian Grain Association, and he was one of our guests one year ago. So I'm very much looking forward to your comments, Nikolai. Okay. Hello, everybody. Thanks, Seth, for the introduction. Thanks, uh, Amis, for organizing such a good event. Uh, I would like to represent myself. My name is Nikolai Gorbachev, and I've got experience on agriculture about 30 years, and I'm working for one of the biggest French uh, company as exporter of the grain. On the same time, I am president of Ukrainian Grain Association. Ukrainian Grain Association is a public organization and about 90% from total grain export done by our members. On the same time, we've got through our members a company which grows grain, uh, which operate and own inland silo and port silo. That's why we can give easily any expertise uh, on agricultural market. Today, I would like to share my view what we've got after one year and uh, what will happen on the future. I hope you can see my screen. It's not in presentation mode though, Nikolai. Uh -huh. Just a second. Can you see my presentation? I can. It's 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 not in presentation mode. I can see it in your view. <laughs> you see, I, I try I try from the beginning and uh, it works well, but now it uh, doesn't work at all. 
Well, and 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 it's that's good enough, I think, if you want to go back to the way you were doing it. We can read oh. it. That's right. It's readable. So it's there oh, you perfect. go. There, perfect. There okay. Okay, sorry for this. It's uh, as I said. It's uh, I do not use so usually this Zoom. That's why it's so difficult. Sorry for this. Okay, first of all, I would like to say that uh, it's not so easy. You see now, slide doesn't change. It's first slide, and uh, you can see the fields uh, on Ukraine, which uh, now we've got around the whole country. I would like to say that about 4,000 kilometers, it's front line, and of course, about uh, 30, 50 kilometers from the both side, it's uh, just impossible uh, to walk for any farmers. And uh, we've got situation even uh, worse because uh, about 20, 25% from all these bombs and mine, it uh, didn't explode it yet. And uh, farmers, before they will go to the field, they have to demine this. Uh, I remember when uh, I used to be kids and uh, I went to my granny and we tried to find some bombs or other weapons uh, from the Second World War. I think in Ukraine we'll have this situation for the long, long period of time. Okay. In this case, uh, this is my lovely slide. It, uh, you can see that red line is production of the grain in Ukraine and the green column is export. And uh, if uh, 20 years ago we produced about 42 million ton grain and oil seeds, our exports from Ukraine was about nine and a half million. Before the war, we grow 106 million ton grain and oil seeds, and our potential export was about 70 million ton grain and oil seeds. But unfortunately, uh, what began uh, one year ago, and we didn't complete our export program, and our export on the past season reached just 53 and a half million ton grain and oil seeds. It's without oils and without uh, sunflower seeds meal uh, and uh, soy meals. In this year, we have a decrease in production of grain, about 70, 72 million ton. And our expert expectation until the end of this season, it's until the end of June, about 51 million ton. But for the next crop, we expect production about 65 million ton. And I would say that decision from all members of Ukrainian Grain Association, it's quite optimistic and it's quite possible that we will produce for 10 million tons less. But even with this uh, production of grain and uh, even with this potential export, uh, I'm not sure we will be able to export all this volume. And the question will be how the grain corridor will work. Grain corridor now work not so good. Okay, I think uh, now you can you cannot see my screen. Yeah, yeah yes. they're they're Great. they're moving the slides, Nikolai, for you. So you have to say next slide when you want to go on to the next one. Ah, okay, okay, sorry. 
And uh, as you can see that uh, our grain production will be less and uh, export of course will be less. Uh, no problem with national security. National security is not a problem for us because uh, uh, Ukraine uh, used for domestic consumption, for example, on wheat about three and a half million ton and our uh, production should be in this season about 16, 17 million ton. And before the war, we produced 33 million ton. The same situation with the feed consumption, especially now when uh, about uh, 6 million people just left Ukraine and live mostly in European country. By the way, thanks to all Europeans uh, that you help to our women and kids uh, just to feel free to go to the school and just to stay there. But uh, what I think that farmers start to think what will they do on the future? Because uh, for the next campaign, if they will just grow wheat and corn, they will become to the bankruptcy. For example, uh, uh, production of one ton of wheat uh, in Ukraine break even price cost is about 180, $180 per ton. But uh, when farmers start to sell this grain, they can sell it uh, about 150, 160. I would like to remind that uh, in Ukraine, any farmers can get any subsidies. That's why they have to uh, make their operation only with profit. If they grow at 180, they have to sell uh, at least 180. It will be zero profit, but it will not be losses. For the moment, price for the logistic increase uh, in three, four times. If before our export was uh, about 98% through our port sea, uh, seaports uh, and we export uh, mostly to Europe, to Africa, to Asia by vessels, uh, domestic delivery was about uh, $30, $35 for the moment. If farmers would like to send grain to Constanta port, for example, in Romania, or to Gdynia port in Poland, they will spend in three, four times more. They will spend about $120, $130 per ton. But a few months ago, it was even higher price. Before they spent about $30-$35. Of course, with such price as $320 for the moment, for example, on wheat on FOB basis, minus $120, it's $200, minus FOBIN, minus other certification, it will be definitely lower price than break even. Can we have next slide, please? Okay. Uh, you can see on this slide that uh, our export uh, was uh, quite good before the war. It's a blue line and uh, we export even more than 7 million ton per month. But uh, unfortunately, after the war, we lost the opportunity to export our grain through the port sea. That's why we start to use alternative way. Alternative way, I mean, we start to export by trucks and by railway, and we start to use Danube river ports. We improve the situation, and uh, for the moment, we can uh, export on these three variant, about two and a half, three million ton per month. On the, on the same time, the grain corridor 
which uh, give to us opportunity to export uh, from our Black Sea. We, we are happy to get this opportunity. We export their uh, main volume. And for the moment, we export about uh, three up to four million ton only through the grain corridor. The rest we export uh, on alternative way. Alternative way more expensive than grain corridor. But the uh, grain corridor has a huge disadvantage. It's unpredictability. First of all, when you will get the vessel, sometimes vessels are waiting on a queue about 40, 50 days because Russia, they just block our checking vessel. They just decrease number of teams of checking and uh, all exporters pay damages uh, from uh, 30 up to $40 per ton on each vessel. Can I have next slide, please? We've got a proposal what we have to do with this, but unfortunately no decision for the moment. By the way, today, the General Secretary of United Nations, Mr. Gutierrez, he had a negotiation with our President Zelensky, and I hope we will find the solution how to continue to export through the grain corridor. I will remind that previous memorandum sign and work until the 18th of March. And since 19th of March, this grain deal can be cancelled. But uh, I am quite optimistic and uh, I hope the decision will be made and we will sign this agreement and Ukraine will continue to export. On the, on the next uh, crop, we'll have less export program and even without grain corridor we will be able technically to export this grain from ukraine for the moment uh, the biggest buyer uh, from ukraine it's china and on the second place uh, it's spain but about uh, 25 percent it's uh, african country the rest, it's around the world. But in any case, before we export grain more than 100 countries, for the moment, we just cut it from the sea and we've got difficulties. Okay, on the principle, that's it. I will be happy to answer on any of your question. Thank you very much. All right, thank you very much, Nikolai. Um, next up, I, I, I want to enter... When we first had this discussion a year ago, we focused a lot on uh, grain impacts and grain trade impacts. And, you know, Turkey, obviously an important importer and processor in the region. Turkey is also facing its own uh, humanitarian tragedy going on right now. So I, I think we want to give Aaron Gunham Ulusoy, director of the International Association of Operative Millers of the Eurasian Region, a chance to talk to us about Turkey's role in the region and also the effects of the tragic earthquake going on in the region. Thank you, Aaron. The floor is yours. Thank you, dear Seth. Hello to everybody. Thanks to Amis for uh, making this organization. Uh, yeah, uh, I am the director for uh, REM International Operating Millers Eurasia region, uh, but uh, I'm a, uh, pro, my uh, professional work is a miller in Turkey. As you mentioned, uh, Turkey is uh, maybe when we look to the wheat ecosystem over the world, uh, 
we can say it is the third country affected most affected from the war uh, after Russia and Ukraine because we are the biggest importers of uh, Russian and uh, Ukrainian wheat uh, before the war we are dependent uh, we were dependent on the uh, Black Sea supply uh, of wheat so the war has uh, serious effects on uh, Turkish uh, grain sector uh, during this last uh, one year. So let me um, share my presentation. I think you can see it. Yes, good to go. Yeah, why um, Turkey is uh, one of the big uh, importers of the world? Let's uh, start with that. Uh, when we look, look to Turkish grain sector, uh, we see that uh, wheat production is uh, around 20 million tons, but the land wheat uh, produced, the acre, is going down every year from 9.7 to below 7 million hectares in 2020. So we are losing uh, land, but uh, keeping the volume, uh, the production uh, quantity, constant with increasing yields but in during the same period the population increased from uh, 60 million to 85 million so the wheat import of turkey raised from almost zero to uh, nine almost nine million tons in uh, two decades so that's why uh, turkey become uh, one of the biggest uh, I think in several years, second or third, after Egypt, uh, China, uh, Turkey states as the third ranking country, Indonesia, uh, sometimes fourth. So when we look where Turkey make these imports, as I said, the Russia is the dominating origin for the Turkish wheat imports. As you see, Justin, 2010-11 season, it's uh, Russia is 15 because there was Russian export, uh, wheat export ban. Uh, except that season, uh, we see straight 60, 70, 80 percent of Russian supply arriving, Russian wheat arriving to Turkey. And last year's, uh, starting from 16-17 uh, season, we saw that Ukraine had also have an increasing share in Turkish. Uh, wheat import uh, just before the war when we look to 21-22 season it was up to 21 percent so these two countries uh, is playing a crucial role in uh, sub wheat supply chain of Turkey so what happened after the war of course suddenly during uh, until the uh, grain corridor opening during April May June uh, we so a uh, shrink in Ukrainian share down to 4% and uh, increasing uh, Russian share. The Ukrainian share uh, shifted to uh, Russia. But after the grain corridor opened, uh, Turkey uh, start to uh, buy, uh, start to uh, purchase from Ukraine as well. And then we see again 30% uh, shares from Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian supplies. So uh, basically, of course, these are the about quantities, but 
Uh, about the prices, I think uh, no need to mention, all of us know that uh, prices has uh, jumped almost twofold. Uh, we see up to $500. So uh, it's regardless to say uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war was uh, main reasons for world food prices to see the uh, peaks on 2020. But with uh, grain corridor, we see a very uh, optimistic market nowadays, and uh, prices are uh, back to levels before the war. The, in the world, when we see that, even with the previous year, the total world uh, production and consumption had not big gaps, but the, uh, when there is this kind of supply chain disruptions, the psychology of market affected a lot, and we see huge price increases uh, through the market. Yeah, uh, grain corridor, Nikolai gave uh, already detailed uh, numbers, but what I want to attract attention is in the beginning, uh, Spain and Turkey was the uh, leading countries who are importing from the grain corridor during August, September, October. Later on, we saw Chinese demands uh, came to uh, the pictures, uh, especially because of corn harvest, because they are uh, usual regular corn buyers from uh, Ukraine. And then uh, on uh, December, we see that uh, China become the biggest importer from the grain corridor. Spain is following. and. Uh, Turkey is next. Of course, uh, what I want to explain with this graphic is um, the effect of the war uh, is uh, when there is a uh, supply disruption in specific country, uh, it is not uh, easy to replace it in quick time. So uh, we, we see that some uh, more remote countries like China have alternative uh, supplies for the uh, coming month, because uh, as they are remote locations, they go on with longer period contracts, uh, despite close countries like uh, Turkey and Europe countries uh, keep for uh, more uh, close time periods, one month, two month uh, contracts. So it is hard to uh, switch for the countries which have, uh, which are remote, remote to uh, originating uh, countries. So uh, my last uh, slice is about um, what happens in Turkey, the devastating uh, disaster, the earthquake on 6th of February is uh, of course uh, affecting many parts of uh, many people, civilians, the uh, daily life, and of course also the grain markets. As uh, Seth mentioned, Turkey is the biggest flour exporters of the of the world with uh, 3 million tons per year and uh, this is uh, representing a quarter of the whole world market when we think that the total is uh, almost 13 million tons the world flour market so uh, turkey uh, is a wheat importer but also a processor and a flour exporter especially supplying to Middle East and Africa and uh, a regular uh, supplier to uh, WFP for uh, humanitarian aids. So is this uh, supply chain affected? I will say 
uh, when we look to south of Turkey, the ten cities affected. Uh, it's an important region for for Turkey about uh, wheat production, flour processing. Uh, but as uh, the wheat flour processing industry has an average utilization rate of 52%, uh, what is uh, stopped, disrupted in that region, already compensated by uh, other regions, both for domestic uh, needs, domestic demand, and export uh, demand. And uh, when we look the uh, production number, wheat production number, over 19 million tons of Turkish uh, yearly wheat production, 3.7 million tons is uh, produced in the affected cities. Uh, so in this context, uh, there is not yet any statistics uh, declared uh, by the government officials, but as uh, depending on the market information, uh, we expect around uh, six percent of uh, lost on on this uh, on this field because of um, earthquake effect. And uh, when we look to milling capacity, it is five million tons. But as I said, this is the capacity. This is not the utilization. So uh, half of it it, it can uh, be assumed as the uh, utilization in the region. Uh, we know that uh, there is. 11 milling facility uh, demolished uh, totally unfortunately which cannot be workable again and around uh, 109 of them is affected uh, the production stopped but they will uh, recover soon and start the uh, production uh, so in in uh, summary i will say the uh, turkish supply to world floor market is continuing uh, not affected directly from earthquake, but of course this earthquake will have effects, uh, economical, social effects in, in Turkey for the upcoming years. And uh, lastly, about the grain corridor, uh, the market is uh, uh, already already agree, market players or future markets agree that the corridor uh, will be extended. Uh, I wish that that will be the result for sake of uh, the world industry and of course especially the consumers thank you so much all right thank you aaron i think this is a great addition to our discussion from one year ago i really appreciate i, I think it was important for us to expand this to obviously one of the key players in the region and one of the key demands within the region so aaron uh, thank you very much for that contribution and our thoughts remain with the turkish people on that on this extreme tragedy that the country is facing. And so I, I think that, that we're going to carry this theme into our next speaker. And I'm excited about this as well, too, that, that, that now that we've, you know, we've had a little bit of time from the initial impacts of Ukraine to start broadening and talking about the effects for consumers in the region. So I want to I wanna invite Sikandra Kurdi, a research fellow at IFPRI, to talk with us a little bit about the demand side in wheat markets. Sikandra, this is this is the floor is yours. Oh, but I think you may be you. 
Th thank you so much. And um, I have some slides, which I think should be coming up soon. OK, perfect. So I'm going to talk about um, the, the impacts of the Ukraine war and uh, kind of the turmoil in the wheat markets on Yemen and Egypt, um, two countries that uh, are among those that are, are fairly um, deeply affected and, and also places where we have ongoing research programs. The next slide, please. Okay, um, so we'll start over in Yemen. Next slide. So Yemen has a long history as a rich agricultural producer, um, but starting in approximately the 1970s, there was a lot of outmigration uh, to work in the neighboring Gulf states and as well as rapid population growth. So it's become increasingly very heavily dependent on imported wheat. Um, the additional important context is that even before the civil war, there was heavy dependence on wheat, but since 2015, the civil war were all coming up now on almost eight years, and that has had very devastating economic effects, particularly in terms of the balance of trade, where now the volume of just the, the value of total food imports is almost equivalent to um, the value of all exports. So it's very difficult to finance. Before the Ukraine invasion, already during the um, civil war, uh, you are seeing that there's heavy dependence on wheat uh, in terms of people's diets. 46% of calories are, are coming from wheat. And then the graphic here is showing um, where those wheat are coming from. Um, the first bar is showing uh, wheat's role in uh, calories. Um, and then the orange part is showing uh, the portion that is coming from Ukraine and Russia. So it's a pretty significant uh, volume. The other important background to understanding the impacts of the Ukraine invasion uh, in Yemen is that due to the civil war and also kind of long-term underdevelopment, Yemen's very, uh, um, has a very severe humanitarian situation. Uh, about 26% of the wheat imports that were coming in were actually coming from the World Food Program for humanitarian distribution. And beyond that, it's basically the private sector. So the government is not very active. Um, it's a very small and kind of fragile government there. Next slide, please. So in terms of what happened with uh, wheat imports to Yemen um, uh, in the past year, there was initially a shift to importing um, from India until the export ban and also uh, from the European Union. Um, there have been some imports of now uh, almost five shipments through the Black Sea Initiative. Um, again, not huge. Um, so it's uh, at the level where, where they're barely managing to keep up. Um, and there was a huge um, kind of uh, um, drawdown of the domestic supply, which hasn't been made up yet. One of the big challenges is that in kind of the global scramble to shift uh, to new um, importers, uh, the people, uh, importers from Yemen are at a disadvantage because of that ongoing civil war um, in the country. Um, it means that their costs are a lot higher. Part of that is because of the high price of insurance for uh, commercial shipments. Um, also, we have high fuel prices um, and shortages within Yemen, which means that the grain milling is very expensive. 
And um, then we have this balance of payments issue where um, because there's so little ex net exports, um, there's been a severe rationing of foreign exchange by the central bank. Um, and then on top of all of that, a lot of banks are a bit hesitant to do business in Yemen um, because uh, there has been past attempts at doing international financial sanctions. And that's always kind of a, a persistent threat. Next slide, please. Um, the other part of kind of the, the background here is the heavy reliance on humanitarian aid. So um, as of early 2023, uh, the entire country is actually in uh, IPC phase three or four, and the black um, kind of check marks are showing the governorates where they would have been in a worse phase. So the orange is crisis, a red is emergency phase. Um, so these like orange ones are being maintained um, away from an actual emergency only because of that ongoing food distribution. And the food distribution uh, in Yemen is really extensive. More than half of Yemeni households receive some form of food aid. And this is particularly challenging in the global context these days um, with the Ukraine crisis, with other kind of the um, lingering effects still from the COVID-19, uh, that humanitarian funding uh, pressure is even higher than it's been in the past. Uh, the World Food Program was forced to cut the food distribution rations by about half in 2022 to keep up with the same number of beneficiaries simply because there wasn't enough funding to reach everybody with the standard rations. Next slide, please. So then turning to the household level, um, there's not a lot of, it's, it's difficult to collect um, data from Yemen um, continuously, but looking at data that was collected um, before the war, kind of just before the war, we see that um, for poor households, when we talk about the um, average of like 46% of calories coming from wheat, that's much higher for the, the households in the poorest quintile where it's like 71% of calories are coming from wheat and about 25% of their budget just goes to procuring their calories. And what we saw in our own data collection, um, uh, comparing uh, pre-conflict to post-conflict, is that as household income falls, households actually end up relying more and more on wheat. And we see actually increases in their spending and even total consumption volume uh, of wheat simply because it's the, the cheapest calorie source. And so you're really almost in this kind of give and good situation where there's nothing else you can substitute into. Another um, place where you're seeing some of the pressure and effects for on the household level is that the small traders are the main uh, channel for distribution of uh, wheat and wheat flour from the ports to uh, village communities uh, in the interior of Yemen. And in the past, a lot of those traders have been a crucial source of credit for small households that find themselves going through a, a hard time. Um, they're able to buy on credit. About 65% of traders um, in a recent survey said that they, they sell on credit, but they can't themselves access credit um, increasingly. So it's kind of this uh, pressure is propagating through the whole system um, from the importers uh, being under pressure uh, to the private um, small traders and then uh, reaching the households. 
And what we're, we've heard most recently in terms of kind of just qualitative reports from focus groups and, and anecdotal stories is that you see um, in the last few months, there's really a drop in demand for the normal kind of uh, 50 kg um, bags of flour and households are just buying barely enough for what they can, what they can get money to buy in small quantities. Okay, next slide. We are switching over to Egypt. Um, next slide. And Egypt is uh, similar in terms of it's having a very heavy dependence on wheat imports. Um, again, because of rapid population growth, um, limited uh, land available. Um, and so um, the increase in imports uh, over the past few decades also have been very concentrated uh, for Russia and Ukraine. Um, here we have the orange is from Ukraine and the red is from the Russian Federation. In contrast, slight contrast to Yemen, um, uh, Egypt is uh, more of a middle income country. Um, wheat is not um, as kind of uh, all encompassing in terms of uh, people's dependence on it. It's about uh, 35, 39% of caloric intake. Um, and the other really big difference is unlike Yemen, where it's all about the private sector and the humanitarian system, in Egypt, half of the imports come through the government, which is responsible for supplying subsidized uh, wheat, flour, and bread. Next slide. So the government has, um, maintains this commitment to keeping those subsidized prices of flour and bread at the fixed level, even as the market prices increased. Um, and that was a very high fiscal burden. The um, total cost of the Temween subsidy program before the um, uh, kind of before the Ukraine invasion was like 6% of GDP. And then the government is having to pay that increased difference in the market price and the subsidized price. So uh, it's not the only reason, but it was definitely a major contribution to several rounds of currency devaluation. Um, which happened um, between uh, in the past year, the Egyptian pound value has um, dropped from 16 uh, EGP to dollar to 30 EGP to dollar uh, today. So almost 100% devaluation. And so the impacts were the, on the household level um, is felt uh, across the board and all of that inflation. Um, you're seeing here in the graphic, um, the uh, food inflation rates uh, over time um, for different food categories. The leading one is for uh, bread and cereals, um, the non-subsidized versions. Um, but then you see it's kind of affecting all of the other food items from meat to fish to milk to eggs to um, vegetables even. Next slide. So um, to be a little bit more specific about the subsidy system, it's uh, in one sense, it's a lifeline for the households because the large majority, um, around 80% of households benefit from the ration card subsidy system, which gives them uh, five loaves of Belledy bread per day. This is actually a nice photo because you can actually see what a, a loaf of Belledy bread is. Um, and they, there's a subsidized price that uh, as I mentioned, it's been uh, fixed over time by the government. Before it was about 10% of the market price. Um, now, after kind of the wheat prices went up and then the um, devaluation of the currency, it's about 5% of the market price. 
Um, so on the one hand, it's a lifeline for the households. On the other hand, it has shifted uh, household consumption very much to depend uh, heavily on wheat and the other subsidized food items. Some of my IFPRI colleagues have done research showing that um, having uh, access to the ration card is associated with more um, consumption of the subsidized, basically it's the, the bread is the biggest one, then it's also oil, sugar, and rice, um, and less consumption of um, more diverse nutritious foods. And that's a bit, it's a problem in a country unlike Yemen, where there's kind of just a problem of undernutrition. Egypt has a double burden problem. So you see both stunting, which is under undernutrition, and obesity, very high obesity rates, which is overnutrition. Next slide. And so uh, wrapping up here, um, we're coming kind of back uh, from the household's perspective. Um, now in Egypt, uh, we've done some survey data um, going back to follow up with poor and near poor households that we talked to uh, in January 2022 to talk to them again um, in October 2022 and ask them what's changed over time. Uh, the majority of them are reporting decreases um, in animal source proteins, um, very much in meat um, and eggs. Um, so this is kind of the graphic. The red is the proportion of, of households showing uh, decreased consumption. Um, th there's a few that are increasing consumption, but you can kind of see that this is in the things that people might be substituting towards. Um, so the, the highest value food items, they're, they're dropping out of people's diets. We also asked um, in general about what coping strategies households has used to deal with the inflation in the past year. And the leading ones were to stop repaying debt, eating lower quality food. And there's actually quite a substantial share, about half of the households said that they're actually eating less food, um, which is surprising in a, in a context like, like Egypt, which is a middle income country, um, as well as reducing uh, spending on healthcare. So there's in spite of the, the government's protection of households' uh, ability to consume wheat, um, there's definitely some very negative uh, impacts on their resilience and uh, the nutrition of their diet. Thank you. And thank you, Sikandra. I really like, now we brought this from Ukrainian production all the way down to some of the, uh, all the way over to some of the most vulnerable consumers that may rely on the global wheat market and Ukraine and Russian wheat markets. So I, I think this is a great addition. I think we've kind of covered from origin to destination in that source. And so uh, next we're gonna go to David Laborde, division director of the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. And David, you got kind of a big job here because you got to kind of tie these three great presentations on this string in, into, uh, in, into a broader look. So I'm gonna hand the floor over to you. Thank you, Seth, and thank you everyone for, for being uh, with us today. Thank you for the great job of the other presenters already to cover some uh, of the fundamental drivers that I'm going to obviously uh, discuss also, but from, in some cases, I would say a global perspective. And um, actually, I'm going to also discuss some of, on top of the tragedy of the war and other events that have occurred in the last few months, some policy responses that still make things worse when the, the, the world faces a problem, we still see uncooperative policies, and I'm going to talk about trade restriction. And let me start by, uh, of course, talking about, about prices. And during my presentation, I will uh, go back and forth between prices, policies, and, and of course, food security uh, outcome or, or linkages, at least at the end. 
And yes, we were uh, already, you know, since uh, the COVID-19 um, recession on an upward trend for energy products, for grains, for fertilizer. Um, some of the restrictions, um, including on some commodity like fertilizer, including in the late 2021, were starting to create some shortages on, on world markets. And obviously the uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, that you can see with a vertical red line here uh, has accelerated some of the uh, trend observed in the last few months, both on the energy markets due to the geopolitical implication of the war, but uh, also um, with uh, uh, on the grain market based on everything we have discussed. Now, since the war um, that is unfinished, but since the beginning of the war at least, uh, we have started to see prices uh, going down, uh, mainly because markets are adjusted in a number of places. Um, but also people have seen that, let's say for example, the Chinese demand on energy product has shifted uh, largely to, to Russia. So there was no major shortage uh, on the global market when countries are start to redistribute their demand and, and their supply. But while the energy prices have declined, um, also because now we are leaving the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, so some of the demand of energy is going down, actually the price of grains have been relatively stable since August. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. And that's a very different situation, for example, from the vegetable oil market where we have seen large decrease over the last year. So just to say that even if people say today, okay, prices are going down, they are going down from a very high level and all prices are not going down. Just want you to raise this. But still, the spike in the um, volatility has made people worried, uh, and in my case, for, for good reason. Um, and just if I want to zoom in on the last uh, 14 months and for some commodities, yes, you see how starting in February, March, we see the price spike. Then during the summer, also because there was good news on some harvest, some prices went down. But since then, we don't have seen any major decrease. We have seen when the uh, UN grain deal was under threat in November, the price of wheat started to decrease, even by 5% just on a couple of days. So meaning that uh, markets are still um, observing really what can influence um, the, the supply in, uh, in various regions. For a commodity like soybean, we will see prices going up again. And so the food markets and the feed markets are still uh, tense. So that's what about prices. Now, the question is how people react to these prices, and in particular, policymakers. And what we tend to see is the use of export restriction. So on this slide, you will see the uh, a level of export restriction on the left-hand side expressed as a share of uh, the global market of calories um, and actually for three prices. If you want the food price crisis of 2008, um, the 2022 situation, and what did happen in 2020 when the COVID-19 um, pandemic exploded. And on the right-hand side, you see the number of countries. So. Here you see that first in terms of magnitude, the type of restriction we have seen uh, during the first semester of this year, so mainly during the second quarter 
where uh, as I would say extreme that during the food price crisis of 2007, 2008, and in particular at the beginning of 2008, when uh, in some cases we have not reached in real terms the same uh, level of, of prices, uh, but the, the, some key exporters have actually implemented restriction. But on the right, and then phase out. But on the right hand side, you see that the number of countries have also been high and stable. And I think that when we talk about that, we have to think about, yes, there is some restriction on the global markets. And on the global market, what matters is the big players. But there is a lot of smaller countries that also still maintain export restriction today. And that have an impact on the regional markets. You know, So when you are uh, in some case in West Africa, of course, you are impacted by what's happened in Ukraine. Of course, you are impacted by the export taxes put in place by Russia, but you are also concerned about what Ghana is going to do. And that's where you know you have to combine this to understand all the tension that, that can occur around the world. Now, here is just what has happened since January 2022 up to now. So on the horizontal axis, you see basically the weeks. Um, and uh, you still see the distribution in terms of share calories. So we still go up to 17% during uh, the, the spike at the beginning of the second quarter of 2022. But you can see also how the type of commodities that have been impacted evolve over time. We were on a very rising trend on the vegetable oil markets even before the invasion of Ukraine. But of course, Ukraine played an important role on sunflower oil uh, as, uh, uh, as Russia. But there was a strong dynamic going on on Southeast Asia, and the export restriction put in place by uh, Indonesia actually um, had a global impact and also a domino effect on other commodities and other exporters like soybean oil with Argentina and things like that. So we have seen a lot of restriction in the first part of 2022 on vegetable oil. And let's keep in mind that vegetable oil is also part of the staple food of many poor people. You know, when you start to get rice and you start to fry your rice, it's already an improvement in terms of nutrition. And we have seen in countries like Bangladesh, also how the cost of importing vegetable oil had increased. But yes, during this 2022 early part of the year, large impact coming from vegetable oil, prices of vegetable oil skyrocketing. Um, at one point we were at one, $1,600 per ton of palm oil, so something that people will never thought it will, it will happen. And then after Indonesia stopped to put the export ban, a relatively, um, uh, it relieved a lot of pressure. And what you see now is actually starting with the war, but see today is a number of export restrictions on uh, wheat um, and starting with both the, the, the drought in South Asia, then the flood in Pakistan, some tension coming on the rice markets. And while, yes, the price of vegetable oils have decreased in the last 16 months, the price of uh, cereals have recessed compared to their spike uh, at the beginning of the uh, second quarter of last year, but have stabilized since August. There is one commodity that the price is continuing increasing now for uh, nearly uh, two years, it's rice. And we are back at the highest price of rice since 2019 now. So just to say, you know, a different thing. And that's, I think, the commodity to focus really on 
when we monitor the uh, export restriction, because rice is even a more concentrated market than uh, for all other commodities, and still major source of, of uh, food for uh, the poor people in particular in Asia, but also in Africa. Now, if I look at the same distribution in terms of countries that implement this restriction, uh, that to some extent mimics some of the commodity because most of these countries are specialized. Just at the time of invasion, for example, Ukraine was afraid to not have enough food. So as we have seen in many cases around the world, the first reaction of policymakers is let's keep everything at home. But as our colleague has shown, the problem for Ukraine was not to keep grains in, it was to get grain out. And quickly uh, after the, the invasion, Ukraine stopped to put export restriction and was really focusing on that. But just to say, you know, how policymakers in the time of crisis cannot always um, think about the right solution to their, their uh, urgent problem. Now we, we have Russia that maintains relatively high level of export taxes on many commodities. Here I'm focusing on food, but actually it's also the situation on the fertilizer markets. Um, and uh, at the opposite, Indonesia have removed them. So you see, once again, if we think about who we have to focus on, you have basically the policy of seven countries that over the last 15 years have been always at the core of this issue of export restriction and what they do and how they implement them is very important. Now, as I've said, uh, how they implement them, just to say that we still face a major issue of transparency. So here you, and just to say that I am presenting materials, but actually there is a lot of teamwork behind it. There is my colleague at Tifpri, uh, like Abdullah Mamoun. I am also in some of my slides taking things from, from Joe. So uh, clearly I am not the one at the core of everything. I'm just the voice for, for many people working on that. And why we need many people working on that? Because yes, transparency is still not there. Um, so on the left-hand side, you will see normally countries should notify their, their policies. And unfortunately, we still see a large number of, of months uh, between um, a notification when it occurs um, and uh, what's going on. But of main issue is still, we have basically only 20%, 17, let's say 20% of the export restriction measures that are notified in the WTO. And that's a major issue. And that's also one of the value addition of AMIS and, and the, the, the consortium. Now, in terms of um, measure on the right-hand side, you see that half of them are really are bands. And so they have an impact when others are about licensing and taxes. And why it matters is I'm going just to get two examples. So here you see the exports on Indonesia of palm oil on the left hand side for 2022 in orange and uh, for 2021 in blue. And Indonesia put its export restriction in, in April. Uh, and you see how in May, export totally collapsed. So very strong impact, immediate impact, and then uh, of course implication for Indonesian producers, small orders, and the government um, remove its restriction. On the right hand side, you see a situation in India, where in May due to the, uh, so at the beginning of the crisis, India say, we have wheat and we are going to export it. And actually they have done it. Um, but potentially they have done it in a too successful way. So you see how April, for instance, was a, a very uh, uh, strong uh, month of exports 
uh, by India. But in May, we start to have the heat wave uh, impacting some uh, Indian states. So the harvest was starting to be uh, revised uh, downward. But even after May, when the export ban were put in place, you still see export flows. So they vary from one month to another, but it's not a hard stop. It's just making things more difficult. And it made things more difficult for some commercial traders, including export going to Yemen, were blocked at the time. Um, and then there was a lot of government to government discussion, but obviously it made markets less efficient. Just because I'm going to, to conclude on this graph, I am overlapping the uh, food, the power food price index in blue and uh, the share of calorie restricted in yellow. And you see over the year all the overlap, but here it's correlation, it's not causality, because basically they feed each other. When policymakers see prices going up, they tend to put export restriction. But of course, putting export restriction are creating uh, an artificial shortage on the market and accelerate it. And that also thing we investigate uh, with various colleagues. Um, but the, the, the situation is yes. Each kind of measure sometimes is, has its own story and political economy behind it. Uh, and price and price sense is part of the story but other elements can factor in. I'm going to conclude about talking about food security. I just want to say that food security was deteriorating already for years, and basically since 2015 before this crisis. This year in 2022, we had to deal with three, still the three major drivers of food security. So conflict, global, and I would say local, um, climate shock directly linked to climate change, uh, we have three years of La Nina on the road. Uh, and we know that in some places like Australia, it can mean more water and so increased production. And in other places, it means also drought. Today, Argentina is facing very um, terrible production condition, for instance. And of course, the economic uh, situation coming from COVID um, make things difficult. But we have this rising food security structurally and uh, on top of that, the crisis. But the Ukraine crisis is not the only driver, okay? And I'm not even going to start to do attribution to start to say, because there is the war in Ukraine, there is 5 million people more or less. All of this come on top together. If this year we have great harvest and economic growth, uh, the impact of the war will be reduced, but at the opposite, um, if we have bad harvest, things will be uh, much more complicated. And we know also all the what impact the macroeconomic dynamics. Uh, and so, you know, you have all of this combination of effects. Uh, and just to conclude just this slide to show, you know, this is among the country where we have seen the largest number of people that are in near famine situation. And yes, you have some that are directly related to what's happened in the Black Sea in terms of providing food through commercial or humanitarian help but you have also a lot of situations that are about local conflicts. And that's this nexus that uh, still require um, attention. Thank you. And, and thank you, David. I, I, I knew you could bring us home. So I had all the confidence that you'd wrap it up that way. I, I, I think that's important. You know, we're used to these vagaries of weather, right? But as you know, we've got regional conflict. We've got economic, global economic issues. We've got major conflicts in a producing region in the Black Sea. I think when we have combinations of these things and when you add conflict that has a very uncertain time horizon, 
I think, and then layer on top of that other decisions like export restrictions, we start to see this volatility. And I agree with you, if we've, we, we need good yields around the world in order to reduce some of this volatility, will we get it? Well, we're used to the vagaries of weather. What other events will we see? Now we're going to move on to the next phase. And this is going to be really difficult for me, because as I said, I'm not going to get to ask any questions. And I thought the speakers have been great. So I'm going to have to pass on uh, ah, before we do that, I'm going to remind you all that that uh, while we're running these questions, you can submit your questions at ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag at AskIfPre on Twitter, because right after these uh, interventions by Joe and Aaron, we're going to move on with, they're going to move on with the conversation. So I'm going to hand it over to Joe Glauber, who's Senior Research Fellow at IFPRI, and also Secretary for Amos, and Aaron Collier, who's the feed and food grain analyst at FAO and also a major contributor to Amos analysis. So Joe, Aaron, I'm gonna hand it on to you. Great, Seth, thanks so much. Um, and Aaron and I will kind of do a tag team here. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, unfortunately. Uh, uh, and I'm sure like the rest of you, I was, uh, I, I, this last hour has been great. I've learned a lot. But I, so I'm gonna start right away with actually one of the questions that has come into the chat. And that's for Nikolai. And Nikolai, the question is, uh, is one that I've pondered over as well. When you are giving your statistics about what the projections are for 2023-24, and in particular 23 production, is that how much of that does that account for production in the uh, occupied areas of Ukraine, or is that is that largely in the unoccupied area? Uh, in the, the free sections of Ukraine, where producers are just either deciding not to plant or uh, plant uh, other crops. Okay, thank you for your question, Joseph. Uh, I would like to say that uh, we can see only, uh, uh, we can see the plan for the crop only on that territory which Ukraine can control. For the moment, uh, I would like to say it about 20% of our territory under Russian control. And before the war, we seen the about 13 million tons of grain. And uh, after harvesting time, uh, they collect additionally 12, 15 million tons. That's why I cannot count and I cannot put in my balance in my supply and demand list uh, this uh, volume of grain, because for me, it's uh, lost for the moment and uh, I cannot control. And as you know, Russia continue to steal grain from the territory of Ukraine and they start to load it from Crimea, from other ports. That's why our <clears throat> forecast base is only on the territory which we can control. Yeah, no, thanks very much. That's very helpful. Um, and it is a question that comes up a lot. So the, uh, thanks for clarifying. I'm going to have one follow-up, uh, Aaron, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. But the follow-up is this, Nikolai. In terms of crop choice, you, you talked about uh, the, the fact that, that all these additional costs for transportation, uh, either going out through the solidarity lanes or even going through the Black Sea because of the demerge charges and other things, that to a degree, those costs are being absorbed in terms of lower prices for Ukraine producers. And that that is causing some producers to, to you said that over the longer run, certainly receive less grain production. How much is shifting to oil seeds? And can you talk uh, a little about that? And can you also address the issue of 
what we saw this year is a lot of sunflower seed being exported rather than being crushed in Ukraine and turned into sunflower oil and export. And if you can just address those two. Yeah. Of course, uh, according to the territory, before the war, we had about uh, 7 million hectare uh, on a wheat. For the moment, it's 3.7. It's nearly in two times decrease. In a corn, we had about five, five and a half million ton, uh, half, half and a five million hectares. And for the moment, in our expectation, in the best case, will be about three, three and a half. Uh, my personal opinion, it will be even less. Uh, but uh, on uh, rape seeds, it will be increasing because uh, rape seeds is a more profitable product for farmers and it's quite expensive uh, oil seeds and uh, it's easily to export to farmers directly without any trading houses. They can load one truck or a few wagons and they can send it to the crushers in Europe. That's why uh, we expect that increase in production of uh, rape seeds for 1 million ton, uh, about 4 million ton uh, in the next campaign instead of three, three and a half uh, in this campaign. And for the crushers, of course, for the moment, it's uh, very difficult to operate crushing plant. And uh, as you know, Ukraine is the biggest produ producer of uh, sunflower seeds oil. But uh, on a te technology of production, we use Gexan. It's a special uh, benzene, it's special gasoline, uh, which necessary use. And uh, it's a very dangerous product uh, to use it during the war. That's why about 50% of our crushing plant now blocked. And uh, we export for the moment a little bit more than 3 million ton uh, of oil, uh, sunflower seed oil, uh, since the beginning of the season. Usually on this period of time, we export for 40% more. And uh, it just uh, increase our stocks of sunflower seeds. And uh, I think we will increase export of uh, sunflower seeds to the Europe, but it will be less than I expected one year ago, because uh, one year ago I expected it will be about 6 million for the moment, uh, I think it will be about uh, three and a half million ton altogether for the whole season. Great. Aaron, I'm going to turn it over to you. Hey, thanks. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and uh, I had a question for David, um, switching to policy restrictions. So, David, you know, we're looking at in terms of the number of policy restric restrictions and export restrictions specifically uh, within the wheat markets, there seems to be kind of a, a bigger, higher magnitude of export restrictions in that market. And I think you said that Russia was kind of seemed to have the most was leading in the export restrictions within the wheat market. Um, it stands out to me a little bit that uh, the big supplies and uh, strong export campaign from Russia recently has been one of the one driver bringing wheat prices down in international markets recently. So I'm just curious if um, you could speak a little bit to maybe a more nuanced relationship between the type and magnitude of an export restriction, the impact that that has on prices. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, Russia has an exceptional year of production uh, going on. Um, actually, in 2022, their exports over the year were about well, 15% compared to the previous year. So a lot of wheat went, went on the markets. Now, they have export taxes, 
potentially for fiscal purposes, for redistributing you know, the gain. We see the same thing on fertilizer. Uh, when there's a lot of export and when prices are high, government wants to, to capture part of the rent. So it doesn't block the export, but it just still increase the price for, um, for, for consumers and for importing countries. So um, obviously, resource supply contribute to reducing the prices. But the specific policy of the Russian government still contribute to get prices above what they should be based on the overall uh, situation. So that's a nuance. And okay, great. Uh, Joe, I'll turn it back over to you. Okay, great. Uh, so this one, I, I, I have, I, I'd like to uh, maybe probe a little bit more on, uh, insofar as Turkey is concerned, because. I, clearly, the, the earthquake has been very uh, uh, devastating on a personal level, on a humanitarian level. Can you, can you Mr. Olo, sorry, can you talk a bit about how much wheat is imported into those, uh, the, the southeastern ports? Uh, is, do they source most of the, some of the wheat for the flour milling uh, sector there from imports, or is it mainly coming from production in that region? Um, I would say um, at least a third of the imports is uh, being done with the um, uh, East Mediterranean ports of Turkey, mainly Iskenderun and Mersin, uh, because the Southeast Asia flour millers is playing role uh, to uh, process the wheat and ship it to Iraq and Syria, which are the uh, two biggest countries for exports. So 1.3 million tons of flour is shipped to Iraq per year and uh, 350,000 tons of flour shipped to Syria in, in a regular year. So uh, that chain, uh, that's uh, chain from wheat converted to flour is affected because the main Iskenderun port is still not operating. Uh, Mersin is uh, operating now. So the, the, the ones who are uh, continuing to production using a Mersin port for their uh, discharging needs and transport needs. Uh, so I will say, um, of course, it's not the, the millers in the region, not just working for export, also for domestic, uh, but exports uh, play, a, uh, play a big role as well. Um, so, but up to, up to now, as, as I mentioned, um, on general basis, uh, the other uh, region, regional producers, millers, uh, they try to they try to ship to the destinations for export market to Iraq and Syria as well. When uh, there was disruption in production in the in the region, so uh, I will say, uh, despite uh, there is these uh, logistical problems in in the region. Uh, in uh, from the destination, uh, we we did not hear uh, much complaints about about uh, uh, shipments arrival to there. Yeah. So so just as a follow up, and just so I make sure I'm understanding, what you said is that overall capacities uh, generally was 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 there was some excess capacity for additional for other mills in other regions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so ultimately, you would say that that this will likely have 
small impacts on imports of wheat and exports of flour? Is that to conclude, or is that, am I right in that? Or is this, uh, would this, you think this will cause some disruption this year in those numbers? Yeah, I, I, I will expect uh, some um, losing the uh, quantity for a couple of months, uh, which I, I uh, explained to Iraq and Syria that that may be affected up to uh, 20-30% monthly. Yeah, that's, uh, it's not uh, just location, of course, there is, um, there is uh, trade relations between these uh, importers in the destination, exporters in the uh, origin in Turkey, so uh, it will take time to get in, get back in the line. Uh, but I will say, yes, the, a, a region, uh, there is a region affected hugely. Uh, but it's like uh, there are other channels to uh, reach the destination, both in uh, supply of wheat, the discharge port, uh, making production uh, as uh, in the mills and. Uh, ship it uh, to the export country to the destination. So uh, we will say uh, in a in a yearly figure uh, we will see uh, we will expect a minor effects. Yeah, great. Thank you, uh, Aaron. Back to you. Great, thanks. Uh, so this is for Sakandra. Um, just looking at consumption, I guess in Egypt. So I know you you talked a little bit about. Um, some of the consumption patterns shifting to some unsubsidized items, meat, chicken, uh, eggs, milk, I think you mentioned. But, you know, just curious about chances or opportunities for any substitution towards other cereals within Egypt, just given away from wheat. Obviously, wheat is a very important staple there, but given the high cost of continuing to subsidize wheat for the government in Egypt, if they were to have to eventually um, scale back on the subsidy and prices were higher and we are there other what what is the landscape for um, other cereals in that situation oh thanks yeah this is a, a great question um so uh, egypt is also a, a maize producer um so they i mean there could be kind of substitution um towards maize but it's not um part of people's kind of dietary patterns and that's something that that's uh, fairly resistant to change um instead what you're seeing um kind of in terms of uh government more more long-term responses it's not trying to um shift people's consumption patterns but they're trying to increase uh domestic production um so they have, uh, a, uh, in addition to intervening um, on the um, uh, demand side of the market, the government is also very active on the supply side. Um, they have kind of a, a wheat procurement um, system. Um, so one of the things that they have done is that they've raised the price, the procurement prices for wheat to try and expand uh, production within Egypt. So I think that's kind of more likely in terms of a long-term um, reaction to the high uh, high prices for wheat. Great, thanks. And, and just a quick follow-up question, Joe, if you I may. Um, moving over to Yemen, uh, just in terms of overall consumption, I know you mentioned that there's some evidence that some households are buying smaller quantities because of the high prices, but also some other poor households seem to be even more reliant on wheat um, given the price advantage for them. Um, 
so overall the impact of the high prices of wheat would you say on overall total consumption is there any dampening dampening effect there or um not not yet so it's it's quite difficult to get like um really accurate consumption measure at the household level these days because you have to actually go and collect it um, from the field um we have uh, some kind of up, upcoming surveys. So we're hoping that by the time those get to the field, we'll, we'll have more information. Um, I mean, overall, the, the, the data that is available is from these uh, screening uh, surveys, usually done by telephone, that's asked about the food insecurity level. And that's what kind of the, the um, famine um, classification level um, is really drawing on. Um, so there, yeah, you see that the, the situation is worsening in terms of uh, the share of households that are, are reporting food insecurity. Great, thanks a lot. Uh, back to you, Joe. Great. Um, so we have one question from the uh, uh, chat that's come in, and, and David, I think I'll, I'll let you handle this one. But this is a question that comes up, I think, a lot, uh, because both in terms of whenever we, we've seen periods of where we have food spikes and other things, people have talked about, well, shouldn't countries embark on self-sufficiency policies, or shouldn't shouldn't the world be considered uh, shouldn't the world be maintaining large grain reserves can you discuss those issues uh, i realize you could probably write a book on those people have written books on that, those issues but if you could kind of give your some quick thoughts on that so uh, yes i think that we, we should first keep in mind that we don't know where the next risk or shock will come from you know, you can be self sufficient and if you start to have a war at home, or unfortunately, the situation in North Ethiopia is that's not going to, to solve your problem to be self-sufficient the previous year. Similarly, uh, due to the, the weather shock and that's going to become more and more frequent, we have seen countries like, like Morocco that have lost 30% of their grain production last year. So there is no one solution that is going to make you uh, protected from every risk because by definition, there are risks. Um, some are spatially correlated, some are not spatially correlated, some are uh, global, some are local, and it's only through having markets and market connected that you can start to distribute the risk. So that's at one point sometimes upset people, because when you have a crisis at home and the world markets help you, you are very happy. When you have no problem at home and your neighbor has a problem, and so you import part of this problem, you start to be unhappy. But this is how you, you, we have to think that how we let people manage um, individually their risk. And if you are lucky and nothing bad happened to you, that's very good. But the day that something happened to you, how we uh, do it collectively, it's like an insurance problem, that's where it matters. Now, of course, we can also say we can all build a mountain of stocks. Uh, so like this, we will always be ready for the next year. That's a possibility, but that's also very costly possibility. Uh, we have all this narrative about reducing food losses, for example, and post-harvest losses. While we know that a large part of the post-harvest losses come from the lack of capacity to uh, protect the grain, and that it's complicated to keep grains over years, okay? Um, and even countries that have large public stock programs, they face this issue, you know? Uh, when there is excess, you start to stock store things 
unoptimally, and I will say a few years after, you don't know what to do with the brain. The first year is good for humans, the second year it may be good for animals, and the third year you basically ask your uh, bio um, chemical complex to try to break down your, your maize in amino acid with a lot of loss of values, and behind it also a lot of natural resources that have been made. So we have to think that all these options have a cost. They have been tried in the past. Um, and so far, you know, working in a cooperative manner, but also investing in making system more resilient, like um, at the farm level, you know, getting more drought resistance, things, uh, making the, more, the world more peaceful is the way to go through cooperation and smart investment. Just piling up things or think that each of us will be safer if we lock ourselves in a our room may not be on the long run the uh, smartest option. And a bit sad if you think about how human civilization has tried to make some progress over the last 2,000 years. Thanks, David. Aaron? Thanks. OK, I'm going to switch back to Nikolai, um, looking at Ukrainian dynamics. Um, just looking at your export forecasts. So, you know, for maize, maize has been kind of dominating the export campaign from Ukraine um, this season so far. But I noticed in your 23-24 forecast, you're expecting a decline in exports of maize, I believe, um, from, from the season. Um, just curious if that's demand-driven or is that more um, is logistics playing a part in that or is that supply side for, for Ukraine um, in terms of expected reduced production, perhaps? Uh, and then for wheat exports, um, just curious how much um, how much you know Russia's had this very big harvest has had a really strong export um, export pace recently. Curious how much competition from Russia um, is playing a part in in your wheat exports right now. Nikolai, yeah, you may be muted. Actually, I think we lost him. Can I think we lost him. Yep, you'll have to move on. <laughs> well, actually, if I may, just sticking with the forecast, kind of the outlook trend for 23-24, just to um, kick it back quickly to David. Um, just curious, you know, looking forward to 23-24, do you um, expect to see kind of the same level of trade restrictions mag in terms of magnitude and number of countries um, as we've as we've had this past season? So it really depends a bit about you know the type of news we have. You know, that if we start to have a couple of bad uh, news in terms of, of production in some places, in particular on the rice market, I will be worried to see some restriction on the rice market. Now, uh, at the same time, with the experience of Indonesia on pan oil this year, I don't think they will do it again next year. So for instance, I don't expect to see the same um, uh, behavior. So I will see that I will say that we may see less export restriction in 2023 based on the experience of 2022, but potentially on other specific products. Um, and the fact that, yes, uh, so, I mean, situation in Argentina may have to, to be looked carefully also because 
very major, bad supply, and that's a government that can be prompt to implement to new ones. But we already know that Argentina will not have a very good year on world market this year. So market may have already anticipated that. I'm talking here because our colleague is back. Yeah, Nikolai's back. Uh, if you want to restate the question, Aaron. Sure. Uh, Nikolai, I, did, were you able to catch the question or do you want me to repeat it? Unfortunately, I didn't. It's because uh, we still have some uh, problem with electricity in Ukraine and I just was cut it. And before my generation started to work, uh, that's why I lost you for one minute. Sorry for this. No, no, no problem. No problem at all. I was just asking about in terms of um, exports for Ukraine, grain exports, looking forward to the 23-24 season. Um, I guess first I'll start with maize. You know, maize has kind of dominated the exports coming out of Ukraine for the past this this season so far. And but I noticed in your 23-24 forecast um, a slight decline in your expected um, exports of maize. And I was just curious if that's uh, what are kind of the drivers behind those expectations. Is that logistics? Is that de demand driven? Um, if you could speak a little bit to those dynamics. Yeah, it's true. Ukraine, in any case, will decrease uh, production and, of course, export of maize. It's understandable because it's a very uh, heavy product. For example, the yield, average yield in Ukraine in this season, about six ton. Uh, in the past season, we had seven per hectare. It's big volume of grain, uh, which farmer needs to move somewhere, need uh, more trucks, more wagons, uh, and uh, uh, level of profitability in uh, corn, not so good as uh, you can find on other products, for example, on rape seeds, uh, on uh, lean seeds, on uh, sunflower seeds. Uh, that's why we expect uh, with barley by the way and in this season we export only about two million ton of feed barley for the next campaign we expect even less crop and less export of feed barley but on a wheat i in my opinion it's no we have no other choice. We cannot decrease everything because farmers, they have to turn products on their fields and on a winter crop, the best product is wheat. That's why we will continue to produce wheat. But as I said, from the beginning, we decrease our planted area from 7 million hectare down to 3.7. It's nearly in two times. Mm -hmm. And actually, just following up on the wheat, um, you know, for the for wheat exports from Ukraine, notice the forecast hasn't staying stable going into next season. Um, just curious in terms of, you know, Russia's had a very big harvest lately and is ex has a really strong export pace. How much is competition um, from those exports impacting Ukraine's export campaign? Oh, for the moment, we do not feel the competition from Russia. We have another problem. For example, we export through the grain corridor and uh, we pay the damage. Of course, this damage paid by farmers because all traders just put this uh, price uh, for the logistic price as a, as a logistic price. That's why for us, it's the main problem. And uh, now farmers, for example, they can sell their product uh, on FOB basis, uh, million wheat, uh, about uh, $230 instead of 320 
uh, when uh, this product can come to Romania, for example, from uh, Constanta, we can sell for $90 more expensive, but road to Constanta will be even uh, more more expensive than to go to the port. That's why this grain initiative, uh, grain corridor, it's good deal. Of course, it's better than without, but in any case, uh, uh, very high logistic price. We still have very high logistic price. Okay, I'm sorry to say, we've eaten up the half hour for questions. This has been great. Uh, very, very wonderful. Uh, uh, hour and a half here. Um, so let me first thank the panelists. Uh, again, this was, I, I, I really wanted to, to bring a full view of what's going on, uh, particularly focusing on wheat, but, but again, uh, with David bringing in some of the other commodities. So thanks so much. Um, thanks to Aaron and, and Seth for helping me, uh, moderate the panel and, and do the questions. And thanks to the, to my great production team at IFRI, uh, Joanna, Chris, and Michael, who have been um, behind the scenes uh, making this thing work. Um, a, a couple things, I'll, I'll do some shameless promotion. One is uh, I encourage you to go up on the Amos web website. That's amos-outlook.org. Um, you can find a lot of, of, of stuff on markets up there that, that we've been doing now for uh, since 2012 or so, so in our 11th year. Um, uh, I, for more information on, on what's going on uh, in Ukraine, there's a, 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 a landing page on the IFRI website where it has a lot of blogs by David and, and myself and others. And, and Sikandra uh, has, has uh, helped there. And then lastly, I just want to thank Arnaud Petit, who's not on the program, but... Uh, uh, Arno is the director uh, for the International Grains Council, and he's been behind the scenes helping me organize these things. So uh, uh, a shout out to Arno as well. And um, and then lastly, IFRI had, does have an event coming up on the 14th called on uh, food loss and waste in the fruit and vegetable supply chain. So if you have a chance, uh, you might want to check that out as well. That's on the, the IFRI website. And I think that's all the notes I have of things to remember. But again, sorry, we didn't get to all the questions. Uh, you can email us or whatever, and uh, um, we'll, we'll try to get back to you. But otherwise, uh, thanks so much for joining.